0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian
2: Revolution. The Shah wants to make Iran a modern industrial country by the turn of the century. He has only one way to raise the money. Get a high price for oil.
1: But despite flowing oil and lots of money, 1979 signalled the end of the Shah's 37-year reign. The Shah misread the country's mood. The corruption and decadence that accompanied Iran's growing oil wealth became too much for many people, and it reached breaking point. That same year, the Shah's archenemy, Islamic Shiite leader, Ayatollah Khomeini returned from exile in Paris. This
2: is the moment that millions in Iran have been waiting for,
1: promising to return the country to its Islamic roots. But soon for many Iranians, life had gone from one extreme to the other. Freedoms were restricted, particularly for women. And whilst most religious minorities were left alone, those of the Baha’i faith weren’t. Many of its followers were sought out and treated harshly. Today we hear one Baha'i family's personal experience of the revolution. A story of faith, risk and eventual escape. My name is
3: Perea Tarazadeh. I came to Australia in 1988 when I was three. When people ask me how I got here, I tell them on Camelback. I didn't think it was that unusual but it surprises people. It was actually my mother's idea, but you wouldn't guess at looking at her. She's now in her mid-fifties. She has short black hair, neatly tied back, and dresses rather conventionally. But don't let that fool you. She's a tough, strong-minded woman, and 30 years ago, she had fire in her belly and was desperate to leave her home country, Iran. Her family was of the Baha'i faith, a religion that traditional Muslims see as a threat. And after the 1979 revolution, life became dangerous for them. I felt it was time to hear my mother, Jila, and her sister, leaders' stories.
4: My name is Jaleh, but I like to be called Jila. I was born in Iran in 1962.
3: My mother is the second eldest in a family of five. She and her older sister, Lita, spent a lot of time together as there was a big age gap between her and the younger siblings.
4: Growing up, I always was outside and playing with other kids. I was a tomboy, so I was closer to my dad. We used to play together all the time. I have an older sister, Lita. She was the favourite. She was the best in her class and school. (laughs) I used to call Lida Dictionary because she knows everything.
0: My name is Lida. I'm the eldest one in the family. I think I'm so relaxed and, you know, quiet one. And your mom was very loud and (laughs) naughty one in the family. (laughs) As we grew up, we got closer and closer and... Now we are inseparable, I think.
3: (laughs) Growing up in the 1960s and 70s, my mum and her sister Lida went to a local school where all religions were accepted.
0: We had our community, we had our gathering, you know, to have our feasts and our celebration for every religion. Everybody was happy. The middle class was improving. For me, it was very
3: good. My family prospered and enjoyed life under the Shah's modern reign. But that wasn't the case for everyone.
2: The Shah didn't know his people. He looked west to find what was good for Iran and to copy it or buy it with his endless oil wealth. Too much was creamed off the top by the newly rich middle class, the bureaucracy, the military. And worst of all, the ways of Allah, the laws of the Quran, were second to the rule of Mammon the street. The Shah has just gone. Lari...
3: In 1979, the Shah sought exile in the United
2: States. I'm celebrating this final departure by the Shah. The 59-year-old Shah of Iran walked aboard his Boeing jet and with tears streaming down his face, finally left the country. He dominated... It does seem that it's going to be a permanent exile. There is a sense among everybody that he's not going to be coming back.
3: There were then calls for the return of the Shiite Muslim leader Ayatollah Khomeini who'd been living in exile in France for the past 15
2: years. In the last few violent weeks, imperial Iran has collapsed. The Shah in exile, his mighty army beaten in the streets, his secret service purged, his oil wells shut down, his country under the rule of Islamic-styled men of God. Shouting death to the Shah, allegiance
3: Khomeini was eventually voted supreme leader of the country. And in December of that year, the Islamic Republic of Iran was established.
2: now at 79, bent on restoring the kingdom of God in Iran, of purging the influence of the West. It is perhaps a crusade in reverse.
3: My mother remembers the protests, the upheaval, and the sudden changes. she just turned 17.
4: One night, me and my friend wanted to go to a disco. We went to the first disco, but it wasn't open. So we thought we'd try another disco. We went to the second disco and it was fenced off. No one was allowed in. There was a sign that says this disco is haram. Haram means forbidden. When Khomeini came to the power, we couldn't have any fun.
2: Life in Iran has changed radically in the six months since the revolution, and the most obvious changes have come through the increased religious emphasis on social life.
3: Popular entertainment venues were being closed at random.
1: Music, he now says, is a corrupting influence, which is little better than opium. It damages
2: the brain and muddles... Thinking.
3: And violence was erupting in once peaceful suburbs.
2: The mobs were going their own way, dividing into factions, fighting among... One
3: day, I was walking down
4: the street, and the police officer, they said, stop, go away. And next thing, it started shooting. The police are shooting with the Mujahideen.
3: The Mujahideen at first supported Khomeini and then turned against him.
4: Some guy, maybe 10 metres away from me, he collapsed and you could see his brain stuck on a wall and it just blood and brain and blood is running down the wall.
3: My mother was traumatised by what she saw. The violence eventually died down and new strict laws were put into place.
2: The revolution has meant the strict imposition of segregation from men and the covering up of everything except the face.
0: They started abusing me and, slot, you're not covering your hair, you know, and I was so scared. The hijab became
3: mandatory for women, and men weren't allowed to wear short sleeve shirts. And people of the Bahá'í faith that didn't convert to Islam, were persecuted. But their private gatherings continued.
2: The changes have generally stemmed from the rather puritanical form of Islam practiced in Iran, and the increasing Islamification of the country is seen in revolutionary terms, as a sign of revolutionary purity. So how has it actually affected ordinary life? My religion
0: is Baha'i. Baha'i religion came after Islam, so Islamic government, Muslim people, actually, they don't recognise or they don't agree with what we are saying in our Baha'i religion. Muslims
3: believe that people of the Baha'i faith are insulting the teachings of Islam. So in its efforts to get Baha'is to convert, the new Islamic regime confiscated properties and made education difficult. Practising Baha'is also found it hard to keep their jobs. My auntie leader's workplace was one of those targeted by government officers.
0: After I finished my year 12, I started working as a receptionist. The owner was a very nice man. He didn't ask for my religion and anything. After a few months, one of the officers came to the office.
3: The officer was from the Sepaha Pasdaran,
2: the Paldaran, the Revolutionary Guard. They've now multiplied and generally enforced the Islamization of society.
0: And they ask for the employees' details.
2: They are loved or feared.
0: I showed him how many people are working there, and he went to the boss and asking him questions.
2: And if you value your liberty, you stay clear of them.
0: The officer asked about my auntie Leda. Do you know her background? And he said, no, I don't know anything. Just I know that she's working here for, you know, last few months. Her boss was then told to ask Leda about her religion. I said, I'm Baha'i, and he said, don't say that. I said, why not? And he said, because he's gonna force me to fire you right now. And I said, I cannot say no, I'm not Baha'i. <laughs> at the end of that day, I didn't have any more job. If they found out that he's lying, that makes a problem for himself.
3: Despite what was going on at a government level, Baha'is and Muslims generally still got along in Iran. My Baha'i mother and my Muslim father's eventual marriage is an example of this. They were both 18 when they met in 1980. Mum remembers the first time she saw her future husband, a tailor, in the local marketplace. Your dad used to sell jeans.
4: It was like a fashion market. We were walking up and down with my mum. And I smiled, and next thing I saw he came past and he threw the phone number to my hand.
3: (laughs) Considering this happened after the revolution, I was curious to know where they went on their first date. The first time we went out, I was 17 and your dad
4: was 18. I snuck out of school and we tried to go to the movies. We went holding hands and we were that scared we didn't even talk to each other. As we were walking to sit down in the cinema, these two men, the morality police, came over to us.
2: New roving vice patrols have been introduced to make sure that women are behaving modestly.
4: They pulled us aside individually and asked, who is he, who is she? We said we were seeing each other. They said, do your parents know you're here? I thought I could trick them, so I said, my mum knows. They asked for my mum's number. I thought, that's it, I'm dead. Because she didn't know he existed.
3: My grandmother knew that if she didn't lie for them, they'd both be sent to jail.
4: God bless her.
3: (laughs) As my parents' relationship got more serious, mum decided she needed to tell dad that her family was Bahá'í. She'd hidden this information because a lot of people were reporting Baha'is to the authorities.
4: I turned around to your dad and I said, look, I'm Baha'i and you're Muslim. I don't think this is going to work. He said, religion isn't important to me.
3: So my parents got married, secretly, under the Baha'i faith, but they also had an Islamic wedding so that their marriage would be recognised under Iranian law.
2: Reforms by the Shah, which aimed to give women more rights in marriage and family law, have been thrown out. A woman can't walk in the street with a man who's not a close relative.
4: From then on, my life was boring. Women weren't allowed to do anything anymore.
2: Swimming in mixed company is now banned.
4: I couldn't even go to the picnic and enjoy the sunshine. I was so restricted.
3: The Iran-Iraq war in the early 1980s was starting to affect the economy. And my parents were struggling financially. Mum went out to look for work. And at the age of 21 and five months pregnant with me, the tomboy in her came out again. She decided to apply for a trucking licence. The
4: guy was standing at the door. He says, what do you want here? I said, I came to apply for the licence. He said, what licence? I said, I have a vehicle license. And he said, what? He looked at me like I was an idiot. He said, go away, sister, go wipe your child's bum.
3: This became the norm for my mum when she went to look for work. So eventually, she got a job through my dad in a clothing business as a seamstress. Meanwhile, her older sister Lida, the brains of the family, had married and had her first child. And she wanted to keep doing what she loved most, study.
0: I was thinking that one day I'm going to get into a university. I heard that people with different religion they are not allowed to get into the uni. They wanted all Muslim kids in the university. I said to myself that I want my kids to live somewhere that is safe and have a freedom of Study, have a freedom of what religion she wants to be. (laughs) It wasn't a safe environment for Baha'i people at all that time. It was very dangerous. I knew that um, if I stay there, I might get arrested, I might get prisoned. Because of that, I talked to my husband, and then we decided to leave the country. But leaving Iran wasn't easy
3: for people of the Baha'i Faith as they were not allowed passports. The only option was to leave illegally. So in 1985, six years after the revolution, my auntie Lida and her younger sister Shohreh and their families paid smugglers and escaped Iran, heading toward Pakistan for refuge. Lida told my mother about their plan. And my mum decided that once her sisters were safe in Pakistan, we would follow. But my dad was reluctant to go.
4: I turned around and I told, your dad, I'm going to leave Iran. He says, no, wait, we see what happened. You don't have to rush. We could get a better life here.
1: traumatising? Many people are now having second
2: thoughts about whether they're going to stay.
3: And I know many people, of course, most of them are... Lida and Shohre arrived in Pakistan. Then my mum made that fateful decision and told my dad. I said, I'm going with or without you.
4: Your dad didn't really want to come, but I already had made up my mind. Your dad said, why don't you leave Paria here with me?
3: But my mum didn't want to leave me. I was eight months old.
4: I said no. I either go with my daughter or not at all. And I'm going with
3: my daughter. My father thought it was best that he didn't come with us in case something happened, so he stayed in Iran. But my mother was determined, and he let her take me. To raise the money for the smugglers, they sold most of their possessions and, with the help of my grandparents, came up with the money to pay at the time, it cost us about 10000 Australian dollars. $10,000 in 1986 was equivalent to about $30,000 today. First, we had to travel from Iran to
4: the south of Iran, near the border. No one knew which way we were going. Not my mom, not my dad, no one. Just in case something went wrong or someone reported us to the police. We couldn't risk it.
3: On the way to Pakistan, the smugglers picked up another 15 people, 14 men and one woman, Fada, who became close friends with my mom. They were all Baha'is escaping from Iran. It was a long journey.
4: It took us nearly 10 days. We walked and rode on a camel through the mountains. It was very dangerous.
3: Food and water were hard to come by, so what they had was tightly rationed. The heat of the day and the risk of being seen meant the group travelled mostly at night. And this meant following tracks that were often hard to see. Unfortunately, one night our camel lost its footing.
4: The road it was so narrow, hard to walk. I was on the camel and you were on my arm. Uh, Then, all of a sudden, camel rider jumped off the camel. I didn't know what happened, but all I felt that my camel was sliding down. I just grabbed you and jumped off the camel as well. And the next thing, you could see the camel down the mountain. It was screaming. My camel rider
3: said, don't look down.
4: Keep walking, just keep walking.
3: After 10 harrowing days, the camel train of 15 Baha'is and four people smugglers finally reached the border of Pakistan. From there, it was a long day's train ride into the city of Lahore. But there was one immediate problem. Pakistani police walked through the carriages wanting to see passports, passports the Baha'is didn't have. But my mum was extremely lucky. Farah, her new Baha'i friend, could speak Pakistani and had befriended a local mother and son in the same carriage.
4: Farah, she grew up in India, which they could speak a bit of a Pakistani as well. And Farah started talking to this mother. As police walk in, he said, passport, passport. And then I had a passport, what should I do? This lady turned around and said, this is gonna be my daughter-in-law. They're coming from Iran for wedding here. And this is a sister There with me. And the police left.
3: My mum and Farah couldn't thank this lady enough. She literally saved their lives and mine. But we weren't quite out of danger yet. We had to reach the safety of the Pakistani capital, Lahore. We went to the Baha'i centre,
4: and we told them we escaped from Iran.
3: Mum applied for asylum. We were then reunited with Mum's sisters, who were still waiting the outcome of their refugee application. The centre helped us all find accommodation, but we had to pay for it. My auntie Lida remembers the financial strain.
0: We didn't have permission to work there. Even Pakistani people, they didn't have enough you know, work for themselves. <laughs> because, uh, it's a poor country. You don't have any money. And your kid wants uh, balloons, you know. At that time, one balloon was one rupee. And you didn't have enough money. <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, it was very hard. So I slowly found friends and I told them that I. I am they that I can cut hair. <laughs> so I uh, slowly I got some customers.
3: My mother was in a similar situation, but having a husband still in Iran was actually now helpful. Your dad used to send us a package
4: which has got a blanket in it, clothes in it. We used to sell a blanket and some rugs as well. We used to sell them or some American dollars. He would empty the toothpaste, clean the tube, and put the money in there.
3: Yeah, Dad actually hid American dollars in the toothpaste tubes amongst all the bric-a-brac he sent for Mum to sell. After about three months, he joined us in Pakistan. And with an Iranian passport, he was able to come legally. When
4: your dad came over, then my mum used to send a package to us. This way, we made our money to survive.
3: Finally, after 18 months in Lahore, both my aunts and their families were granted refugee status in Australia. My parents and I waited another 10 months before we were reunited with them in Adelaide. By then, I was nearly three. I was
4: at home and my cousin came knocking on the door. He said, Gila, I have good news for you. He said, your visa is here. I didn't believe him because I've been there for so long. So pretty much
3: two years to the day, after mum and I set off on camel with the Iranian smugglers, we touched down in Adelaide. It was March, 1988. The day I
4: came to Australia, it was uh, autumn day.
3: It wasn't what I imagined it to be. My mum imagined that Adelaide would be like her favourite American TV show. Little House on the Prairie. Green hills, oak trees and small wooden houses.
4: But it was nothing like that. When I felt the sun on my skin, I felt free. Because in Iran, I had to cover myself with a scarf. Here in Australia, we have a future.
3: My parents relished their new freedom. The Australian government helped us find a small flat and offered language classes, which we all needed. Having family there also made the experience a lot easier. But once settled in Adelaide, it was time for my parents to start looking for work. So from making clothes in Iran, they went to making seals for car doors in Australia. I used to work
4: 13 to 16 hours a day. With our first paycheck, we bought a fridge, we bought plates, a spoon, and household items. Everything was secondhand because it was cheaper. Even though it wasn't fancy, it made me happy. It made me very happy. Like I could finally start my life.
3: Our small, cream-coloured flat with a red-tiled roof was in a quiet, leafy street and conveniently, just down the road from my school. The only thing my mum really wished for was to be able to speak better English. And luckily for her, her co-workers at the car factory stepped in. My friends
4: at the factory helped me a lot. Sometimes they would spell out words for me, correct my sentences, and talk to me slowly so I would understand.
3: My mum eventually mastered the language. But life in Australia still had its challenges. Nearly 10 years after we arrived in Adelaide, with me about to start high school, my parents decided it was time to start fresh. We moved to Sydney, where they bought a small fruit shop. But the move didn't help the growing tension between them. And not long after we arrived in Sydney, they split up.
4: When your dad and I got separated, It was my responsibility to look after you and to stand on
3: my own two feet. Mum's determination again took over. She enrolled in courses, joined the Army Reserves and put the word out that she was willing to try anything. I went to TAFE. I
4: got my certificate in training and assessment. And a friend of mine came and asked me if I want to be a bus driver. Hello darling, hi, hi. how are you, how are
0: you good. Doing? Good
3: Ironically, 13 years after she was laughed at for trying to get a truck licence in Iran, my mum, the tomboy of her family, got a bus licence in Australia.
4: Good to see you darling, good to see you.
3: She's now been promoted to driver trainer. She's a bit of a star at the depot actually, and she gets a lot of respect
4: you remember what we did yesterday? Could you show me if you remember
3: anything? I wondered if she had any second thoughts about contacting those people smugglers all those years ago. I wondered if my life
4: would have been easier if I stayed there.
3: A couple of years ago, my mother and I returned to Iran. It was the first time back since we'd escaped on camel. Just after the revolution. This time we did have passports, both Australian and Iranian ones. A lot of the strict laws had relaxed, but Mum realised that not everything had changed.
4: I saw the hardship people were going through. I realised, yes, it was the best decision I ever made.
3: After a long month, we were happy when we heard that boarding call for our flight home.
1: Escape from Iran was produced by Pariah Tahazade. The supervising producer was Ros Blewett. Sound design was by Russell Stapleton. I'm Rebecca Huntley. This is our Summer of Home on The History Listen. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.